0: Snuff Production.
1: Daniel Andrews. Now, those two words generate a lot of opinion. I mean, he's always driven a lot of opinion in Victoria, but during the pandemic, the debate about Daniel Andrews went national. So we're going to get a solid reality check on just how popular he is when Victorian voters go to the polls this Saturday. Premier Daniel Andrews is likely to secure a third consecutive election victory, which is no mean feat. So where did his style and his drive come from?
0: He was so determined on getting involved deeply in politics with an aspiration towards having a political career but within a few years he had been elected to be the assistant secretary of the victorian branch of the labor party that's generally a position reserved for people in their 30s and in their 40s he was doing this in his mid-20s
1: A new biography, Daniel Andrews, digs into his backstory, which we'll explore in our briefing right after today's headlines with Katrina Blowers. It is Monday, the 21st of November.
2: Floods, winds, storms, a cold snap and extreme fire danger. Never a dull moment on the weather front, especially at the moment. We've got wild weather lashing the east of the country.
1: So in New South Wales, you've got residents in Daniloquin being told to evacuate by Wednesday ahead of major flooding. Kondobolan's also in the firing line because of that Lachlan River and in Victoria um, residents in Caradoc near Mildura are being told to evacuate immediately but the state's also looking at temperatures six degrees below average and there's snowfall expected to a relatively low level in some parts of the state. That's all thanks to a cold front which could also bring snow to Tasmania.
2: Maybe a white Christmas couldn't be on the cards. Uh, meanwhile, severe storms and big hailstones have been hitting Queensland, and there's an extreme fire danger rating in place uh, up here today with temperatures. Again, in the mid-30s, it has been an absolute stinker of a weekend in southeast Queensland. Uh, South Australia has also seen widespread power outages because of storms.
1: Yeah, I was in the Blue Mountains in New South Wales over the weekend, and we saw some extreme wind up there, quite hot wind as well. And it just makes you think, even though we've had all, all this, this rain and flooding, that it doesn't take long for things to dry out and become a fire hazard as well.
2: The controversial FIFA World Cup has begun. Let
1: the show begin. All the best everyone. That's the FIFA president Gianni Infantino. The first match between Qatar and Ecuador got underway. But no-one could drink any alcohol. A ban was imposed just two days before the start of the tournament.
2: Yeah, that was a pretty awkward turn of events, wasn't it? So people are now paying $20 per can for non-alcoholic beer. Uh, Yesterday, the FIFA president went on this very weird Mm. hour-long diatribe in support of Qatar. Today I feel uh, gay. Today I feel disabled. Today, I feel uh, a migrant worker.
1: Yeah, so this was very weird. That's the FIFA president, Gianni Infantino. It felt like he was parodying an out of touch old white man. Mm. He said he could relate to all those marginalized minorities because he was teased for having red hair as a kid in Switzerland.
2: Yeah, I don't think having red hair and freckles is quite the same as perhaps, you know, being drafted into what many people are calling slave labour for building FIFA infrastructure and possibly even losing your life over that. So the tournament has been dogged by Qatar's human rights records. Six and a half thousand migrant workers have now died since preparations for the World Cup began. And also, there is that uh, issue of gay people risking torture and imprisonment. So, really sorry to the FIFA president that he got a bit of shtick when he was a kid for having red hair and freckles. Don't think it's quite on the same level.
1: Yeah, it was an interesting set of decisions he made, trying to knock that criticism for six, really, calling the Europeans hypocritical because of their 3,000 years of human rights records themselves. Um, It's just bizarre. Anyway, I guess once the sport starts, people will start focusing on that. Um, Australia will be playing France on Wednesday morning. So that's exciting. And it's a 32 team competition. It's going to run for the whole next month.
2: Just as we all suspected it would, Donald Trump's Twitter account has now been reinstated by Elon Musk.
1: Yeah. So over the weekend, he ran a poll, 15 million people voted in it. And uh, the yes vote came in just ahead at 51.8%. So far, Even though the account's been reinstated, Trump hasn't tweeted and he said he'd rather stick with his new platform, Truth Social. What do you make of this development, Katrina?
2: Well, A, no one is even on Truth Social, so good luck with that, Donald Trump. Uh, Maybe he's trying to get Elon Musk to buy Truth Social as well (laughs) by holding out for his first tweet. I just think if Twitter was dead before, because let's face it, it was, especially with tons more staff leaving over the weekend. This is just the final nail in the coffin for Twitter. Elon Musk just seems to get up in the morning and choose chaos, doesn't he?
1: Yep. It is a really chaotic strategy. I mean, I think you could make an argument that um, Trump's ban shouldn't have been permanent. I know quite a few people hold that view that after two years, potentially You know, there is an argument to allow him back on. But the way the decision was made just, yeah, it seemed really chaotic um, that, you know, a poll like this was open to being manipulated by bots, Mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, apparently the thing that Elon Musk was rallying against. So to make the decision in this way, especially when the result was so close, seems fairly poorly conceived.
2: (laughs) We have a historic deal at the UN's COP27 summit in Egypt. So this has run two days over time. And now we have a commitment which will see rich nations pay poorer countries for the damage and economic losses caused by climate change.
1: Hearing no objections, it is so decided. Yeah, that's the COP president there. So the loss and damage deal could be the most significant development since the Paris Agreement, although they're still hashing out the details.
2: Briefly, in the US, five people have been killed and 18 injured in a shooting at an LGBTQI nightclub in Colorado Springs. Police say at least two people tackled the suspect in an act of bravery. The 22-year-old alleged gunman is now in custody.
1: And the Medibank hackers have leaked another 1,500 patient records on the dark web. Um, the fifth set of files has been released containing info about mental health, cancer and other chronic conditions.
2: Chris Hemsworth is taking a bit of a break from filming after he discovered he has a genetic predisposition for Alzheimer's disease. He was taking part in a show called Limitless and he got the results back and it looks like he's eight to 10 times more likely than the rest of the population to develop this disease. So he's just processing all of that.
1: Yeah, right. And Lisa Wilkinson has announced she's leaving the project after five years at the desk.
2: The relentless targeted toxicity by some sections of the media has taken a toll. Not just on me, but on people I love.
1: So, this comes after Carrie Bickamore announced she was leaving a month ago. So, there's speculation there's a big shake up happening at the project.
2: Yeah, I think that would be a perfect opportunity for them to change a format, which has been pretty much the same for a number of years now. And speaking of TV, uh, Kath and Kim have returned to our screens for the first time in 20 years, and they haven't aged a bit. I'm catfishing. Catfishing? Oh, that sounds nice. <laughs>
1: So they've done this um, two-episode reunion. Um, the second part is on tonight. Uh, last night's was a tribute to the late Shane Warren. Obviously, they had a pretty tight relationship. He'd appeared on the show before. All right, Katrina, we'll catch you again tomorrow. Uh, the Victorian election is on this weekend. Um, so we're about to, along with Rihanna Patrick, take a deeper look at the backstory of Daniel Andrews. All right, now to our deep dive on Daniel Andrews, the Victorian Premier. And Rihanna Patrick, you'd have to say, he's one of the most famous Premiers in Australia and in a long time. And also, you know, eight years in power now. Very successful.
3: Yeah, and I guess one of those figures that if you live north <laughs> and further north of this country, someone that I don't know a lot about really, apart from what I've seen on television and what I've seen on the news...
1: Yeah, and for me too. I mean, as someone from New South Wales, I saw a little bit of him before the pandemic, but he really stepped forward during 2020 and 21, became a very divisive figure, but potentially I think some of these traits go a lot further back. We're going to find out because a really great uh, reporter, a colleague of Anneke Smithhurst, who's a part of this show, um, Samaya Lanby, has written a complete autobiography called Daniel Andrews. So it goes back to his early life. Sumaya, so thanks so much for joining us on The Briefing.
0: Thank you. And I'm here representing the best state in Australia then. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I have to disagree with you there, but let's let's save that debate. Um, so tell us about his childhood. You write about how his parents owned and ran a milk bar, which was destroyed when the shop next door blew up. So what happened next for for him and his family and what impact did those events have on his his childhood and his life?
0: So, Daniel Andrews, he was born in the 1970s and this was a time of, I guess, great economic and social upheaval. It was um, around the time Gough Whitlam was elected, we were talking, you know, it was just after the Vietnam War, there are a lot of changes happening socially. And as you sort of just mentioned, um, Andros's father owned a little milk bar shop in working class suburb of Glenroy here in Melbourne's north. And one night got destroyed in a, well, the shop next door got destroyed in a arson attack um, and that obviously impacted his father's business as well. And Daniel Andrews and his parents have since spoken about how their entire livelihoods essentially were just completely destroyed overnight. They had no government support to fall back on. Um, They had no insurance. At their time of greatest need and desperation, I guess, they didn't really have anyone be able to or any government be able to come to their aid. And I think that's important because we sort of see how this change in Daniel Andrews's life and how his family were able to uproot themselves with two kids from suburban Melbourne, travel all the way to Wangrada in rural Victoria and then re-establish a new business, start completely afresh. And we see how that really impacted his work ethic, the importance he sees in, I wouldn't say government intervention, but government support for vulnerable people in times of need.
3: So, May, I mean, you describe his family as not necessarily being rusted on Labour supporters, despite having a grandfather who was a trade unionist. But what gets him interested in politics in the first place and then leads him to join the Labour Party? Well, his mother and then I guess his maternal grandfather
0: were Irish Catholic farmers, essentially. So I think there's obviously that element of that that draws someone into the Labour Party of that background. And I think he has spoken about how he had been interested in politics, how he'd been interested in big ideas. He ended up studying arts at Monash University. And Monash University in the 90s was known for being quite a progressive university or um, had lots of people with progressive backgrounds, um, had lots of you know students who were more left-leaning and I think there was obviously the element of being interested in politics, but all of those circumstances that helped bring him into the socialist left faction of the Labor Party, predominantly through those university years.
1: And so you write about him rocking up to meetings early on in his political life in pinstripe suits, and that he had a kind of a focus and a drive that was beyond his years and beyond his peers. What was that? Because you also spoke to a teacher of his who said he wasn't necessarily the smartest guy in the classroom, but he, he did have that drive you talk about.
0: A lot of people I spoke to for the book, and I spoke to about 60 or 70 people for the book, most of them said that he was born at 40 years old. <laughs> so he was a very old soul. He was, you know – When you're in your early 20s and you've just joined Young Labor or the Young Liberals, all you want to do is just, you know, like fight, have fun, go to the clubs or, you know, hang out at the pub. He was so determined on getting involved deeply in politics with an aspiration towards having a political career. But within a few years, he had been elected to be the assistant secretary of the Victorian branch of the Labor Party. That's generally a position reserved for people in their 30s and in their 40s. He was doing this in his mid-twenties. A few years after that, he was pre-selected to become the state member for the seat of Mulgrave. You know, within a year or two of being elected into parliament, he was already Parliamentary Secretary for Health and then became a minister shortly after. So we see how determined he is and how quickly he had risen through the Labor Party ranks.
1: Yeah, so it was a very quick entry into politics, late twenties, and then, you know, very soon he was running the party, 2010, and then won that election in 2014. Let's sort of, I guess, pull out to the national picture, because as we touched on at the start, a lot of us from other parts of the country only saw him really step up to prominence during the pandemic. And obviously, there was the record lockdowns. There was also the, the record marathon press conferences, which I think for a lot of us showed a leadership style we hadn't seen before, so is what the rest of the country saw during the pandemic is that a fairly good indicator of of what his leadership had been like for the years before that?
0: Yeah, I think so. And I think it wasn't only just the rest of the country that got to see him for the first time and his leadership style quite prominently during the pandemic, but I think it was also Victorians as well. You know, I'd be keen to hear your guys' thoughts Mm. and views on how you saw him, you know, from Queensland, New South Wales, particularly during 2020 when you were just living freely (laughs) and enjoying the sunshine while we were locked up.
3: Yeah, I think for me it was just interesting to see the kind of approach that he took for the state and obviously in Queensland we have a Labor Premier as well, um, one that also was criticised for closing borders but as Queenslanders I, I feel like generally speaking we understood why that was and that it was about keeping us safe and and really giving us what we had during that really peak period um, of COVID and then to see that there was this you know, he was popular but then he was also not very popular and seeing that sort of play out on social media was very different to what I was seeing and I don't know what I took from that, Tom. Mm. I know you had, um, you know, you sort of had different feels to what I was having. I think I was just maybe impressed as well with some of the things that he was saying and, and the way that he was leading the state but then I would also see what social media was saying at the time too and what others were saying that, realising that there were these very two different sides to people that really liked him or people who really did not like him.
1: Yeah, I find him a slightly perplexing character. There's almost a, a duality. You know, I first noticed him before the pandemic and saw that he had very progressive politics and policy um, positions, but then also was quite a brawler, quite tough in some ways. And then another duality was that he just, he just sounded like a regular bloke from around the corner but he was clearly very driven and, and well-organized. I struggled a little bit in the pandemic. I, f- I found his deflection whenever there was a controversy a, a real turnoff though, and I really started to understand some of the critical voices that maybe didn't mind his, his policy positions, but the, the style and the way he handled and deflected controversies um, was less impressive.
0: I think that's a pretty accurate summary of Daniel Andrews and how he's run both the Labor Party um, for the last 12 years but also the state. He's a very, very effective communicator. He's probably the best political communicator we've seen in this country for a very long time.
1: It's something actually you sort of throw up as a very interesting question at the start of your book where you say basically, is this man brilliant? Do we need to study his character or is he just a relatively competent leader in a state that leans towards Labor anyway?
0: Are you saying I wrote an 80,000-word book for no reason?
1: <laughs> no, you threw up the question at the start because that's the interesting debate. You know, if there was any good Labor leader, would they be able to hold power in Victoria because that's the general political leaning of the Victorian population or do we do we have a really special once in a generation man on our hands here and you sort of I guess then move through his story as a way of answering that question so no it wasn't a waste of 80,000 words you you hooked us in with a intriguing question so we stuck around to the end
0: (laughs) um Yes, you have a strong leader in Daniel Andrews who's obviously been um, relatively competent in that he hasn't squandered his years in office. He's actually, you know, all of the infrastructure projects that he's embarked upon or all of the socially progressive reforms he's enacted – the other part of the equation is a Liberal Party in Victoria that doesn't know, that hasn't known what it stands for, who it represents, what it needs to do. And the Liberal Party here hasn't had really strong leaders to counteract Daniel Andrews.
3: So Samay, how do you think he's going to go in this next election? I mean, he's already one of Victoria's longest serving premiers. Will he cement that even more?
0: When I wrote the book, so I wrote the book around this time last year and had filed my first draft around February. Then the polling was showing that it was probably going to be another landslide, um, that he was going to be re-elected very, very comfortably for a third term. All the polls now show how much the race has actually tightened. They do point to a Labor-majority government, albeit with a significantly reduced majority. And pollsters are now saying that a hung parliament or a minority Labor government is not out of the question.
1: So that was Samaya Alambi, who is a political reporter at The Age in Melbourne. Um, She's written the book, Daniel Andrews, a biography. What do you take from that, Rihanna?
3: I feel like I did get glamoured, Tom.
1: What do you mean glamoured? You're impressed?
3: I don't think it's impressed is not the right word, but when Samaya was talking about how good a communicator he is and how he breaks things down, I suddenly realised that I think I got very sucked into that everyday Joe that I was hearing and seeing, but I also think I wasn't in journo mode at the time. I was a concerned citizen where I was in Queensland watching all of these briefings and not necessarily dissecting it the way that I would have.
1: Right. So his approach worked, but throughout this interview, you've now learned how that approach is kind of constructed and where it comes from, and you and under- you realise that his tactics worked on you.
3: Definitely. Definitely, yeah. And so that's made me think a little bit deeper, and by reading this book too, has made me think a little bit deeper about the way that he approaches things and how he does mm.
1: politics. Yeah. No, he's really intriguing, and he gets people talking, I'm even intrigued by my own reaction to him, because apart from the pandemic, I would agree with a lot of his policy positions, so the substance of what he's done, but his, his style I, I find a little infuriating, this sort of authoritarian, um, deflective streak that he has really doesn't sit well with me. A bit grating? A little bit grating. Some real pros and cons and some nuances to his personality, but he is a strong leader, he cares about his state, and he's been very successful. So it's clearly working for a lot of people. Tomorrow on The Briefing, the protests in Iran have still been going. We looked at them several weeks ago and more people have been locked up, more people have died as the unrest continues in Iran. We'll bring you the latest from that country on tomorrow's episode.
0: Listener.